arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! How scared could you get as a child? One afternoon way back when, the early show on Channel 7 had as its afternoon feature, Frankenstein. My God was I scared. I had to have been eight or nine years old. And I was scared even before the movie started. In my mind, I had created this overhanging fear that just sunk over the neighborhood. The build-up was as intense as the sight of the monster himself. He was not Boris Karloff, he was really the monster, who was taken from human body parts and sewed together into Frankenstein. Add in a few Tesla coils and sound effects and there he was. I think I was so scared because I allowed the suspension of disbelief in an all-encompassing way because of the talk of the movie with my friends as well as wanting to be scared and thinking there was nothing I could do to stop it. What happens in Reunion is indeed a reunion, but with extenuating circumstances. Commander Ross's family ship has been taken to a non-aligned planet. With his trusted second-in-command, Lindy, they track the ship's trail to Scavia Tangle to find his family members. The madman, Saul, who is in control of this militarized and decimated planet, it's half-human and half-constructed human, clearly in the tradition of Frankenstein. But Saul is more of a threat in the respect he can think, albeit in a limited way, and that he possesses forces and technology to make humans just like him. Imagine if Boris Karloff could do that. Keep in mind the name of the project, with apologies to Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, the creator of the monster. Reunion has the underlying theme of Ross's distant father, John B. Ross Sr., and Ross's struggle to at least be acknowledged by his intelligentsia father. There, I've set the background. So let us begin Galactic Command Reunion by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 1 begins now. Voyage 25, Commander John B. Ross, Explorer Spaceship 14. Colonus 756A, 635 AM, 9 Humana, 2154. Transmission to the mothership, normal frequency. Message arrival time, three days. I have requested downtime. Admiral Ebert has allotted one week's downtime to Commander Lindsay and myself to travel to a reunion with my family on cruising ship Earthstar. ESS-14 will be commanded by Lieutenant Commander Kaczynski and will be sent for four days' travel time to the Capellan Outer Planets for geological consultation. Planet 11 is experiencing difficulty with Sector 5's irrigation systems. Section Chief Webb will leave 
the consulting expedition. Commander Lindsay and I will be departing vessel at 8 a.m. Ross, commanding ESS-14. Reunion, Galactic Command Series, by Robert P. Fitton, Chapter 1. Seeing his father again was worse than a failed inspection by a gaggle of command admirals. Ross walked briskly enough to draw attention from personnel passing in the transparent conveyor tube dissecting ESS-14. He slowed to a normal pace, but his heart raced all the way to his cabin. Taking downtime always threw his system into turmoil. But time with John Boyce Ross Sr. taxed all discipline he had learned in his years with Galactic Command. He was secure within the regulations of an explorer spaceship, but that regimen would break down when he and Lindy left the ship for a week with his family on the Earth Star Resort ship. Second rank Schaefer stepped from his cabin. She wore a regulation red and black uniform. Her dark hair was cut short and she smiled when she saw him. He called out from 50 feet down the walking corridor. Is everything ready, second rank? Sir, all of your gear is stowed on the SAV. Internal maintenance just brought in the last case to the Sky Pilot base. Thank you. They moved from his cabin toward the Locust. How about those specian trinkets I've been saving for my mother? Aboard, sir, she answered proudly. Ross knew that Schaefer liked being one up on him. And that uh, archival disc from my, your father? Yes, packed. They reached the narrow stairs, rimmed with an amber archway up top and imprinted with blue galactic command sphere of planets. He stopped at the green locust doors and was scanned by Polonis. ESS-14 area, authorized personnel. The doors hummed and he stepped onto the upper rim's metal grid. He spotted the sandy-haired Kaczynski assuming his command duties at the commander consoles sunken in the center area below. To his right, the science crew was working with Gil Webb in preparation for the trip to the Capellian planets. Not accompanying them on that voyage made Ross nervous. Mr. Kaczynski, ship status, he said loudly. Kuczynski, in his silver and black security chief's uniform, spun around and stood quickly. Everyone on the Locust came to attention. Commander, began Kaczynski. At ease, he said to all personnel, at ease. Lieutenant Commander Muldoon is preparing breakaway speed, John, he said, glancing down at one of the consoles. You rogues aren't wasting any time, are you? asked Ross as he smiled and went down the stairs to his station. What are you complaining about, John, a week away on the Earth Starship? I'm just grateful my family were all within the area, parceled by the Marsavic people. How long since you've seen them? Well, I saw my mother and father six months ago, but gee, my brother Cappy, it's been two years. Wayne, four years, and Deborah last month. You met her at the Delta Six outpost after she broke up with her husband. She's leaving the kids back home for this one, he said, turning to Schaefer. The stuff for the uh, children, Melissa? All packed, sir, she said with a smile. Good. His hands shook and he gripped the side of the chair. Nobody seemed to notice. Car to A, doors opened and Mike Pfeiffer entered the Locust. He was still in his blue fatigues and he pointed at Ross as he moved his large frame down the stairs. Where do you think you're going, John? You know, you can't leave for downtime without being checked out. I'm in perfect health, Mike, and I am going on downtime, said Ross. Leave me alone, doctor. You sound like you're second in command. Lindy said the same thing word for word said Pfeiffer as he attached a small black box to Ross's right arm. Lights he did not understand and flashing readouts appeared on the small screen. Well, what's the verdict? Will I live? The short-haired Pfeiffer smiled. What's so funny? Well, you're right. You're in perfect health. Except... Except what? Except that bruise on your rump when you were sparring with me last week. Listen, you have a level 20, Mike. I shouldn't even be on the mat with you. Pfeiffer was the only one aboard with a higher defense proficiency than Ross. Everything else is fine? Yes, go have some fun with your family, John. Try and relax, said Pfeiffer, releasing the box from Ross's arm. I know that's a tall order. Ah, with the old man, it's always a tall order, he whispered, looking at his side viewer. Gilly, uh, tell me about the Capellian situation. 
See, said Pfeiffer, you can't even relax even when you want to. Construction is needed, he said, grinning as he came on the viewer, in a five-kilometer section back at the source. They aren't procuring the water and distributing it properly. That's where they're running into trouble. It should take us about four days to straighten it out. Good, he said as he turned toward the speaker. Polonus, he said, calling his ships Polonus. Yes, John. Want all the reports from the Capellian planets transmitted to my SAV. Belay that order, said Pfeiffer. What? Doctor. John, you're on downtime. Forget about ESS-14. Forget about the Capellian planets. Just get the hell out of here. Ross looked at Kaczynski. What else? ESS-11 and ESS-19 engaged in a mapping of the parcel, said Kaczynski. Who's going to defend Axiom Baroma? ESX-9 and 6, said Kaczynski. John, get out. One second, doctor. What else, Crutch? ESS-43 is investigating a pilfering of planet cells, planet Vega-3. Vega-3? Defensive research? Anything serious? Pfeiffer and Gil Webb took him by the arms and led him toward the conveyor tube. Okay, I can see when I'm getting the boot. Everyone have a good voyage to Capella. He climbed the stairs to the deck level and turned as he shook his head. The locust is yours, Mr. Kaczynski. Go, John, said Pfeiffer. Before we get a restraining field, now get out. Yes, Commander Pfeiffer. Chapter 2 Ross backed into the conveyor car. The doors closed and the forward viewer, his own consoles and the locusts disappeared behind the closing green doors. Pfeiffer was right, he thought, as he plopped his frame on the rear bench and the car whisked with a slight high-pitched whine down the ship's neck. He had nothing left to give at the end of the long and brutal Antarian War and the subsequent vanquishing of Galactic Command into a single parcel evenly spaced within the M81 galaxy. Relaxation with his family was now his top priority. The realization he actually had downtime swept over him as he passed his saluting crewmen in the walking corridors. His family would gather on Earthstar and meet Lindy. Since his days at the Institute, Lindy had not only been his second-in-command, but a close friend. Pfeiffer was right. It was time to shed his command duties and unwind. The car stopped at propulsion at the end of the vessel's neck. Ross stood and the doors open. His bearded propulsion engineer, Frank Muldoon, was seated in front of S.R. Ripka at the propulsion consoles. Well, at least somebody has downtime, remarked Muldoon loud enough for Ross to hear. Ross kept his course into the Sky Pilot Bay corridor. Rip, please inform Mr. Muldoon I've granted him 45 minutes in the rec room upon arrival at the Capellan system. Mr. Ripka, please relay to the commander that I hope he enjoys his visit with his family. Rip's brown eyes opened wide. Ah, uh, John, he says that... I heard what he said, Rip. You tell him to mind the store. Have a good time, John, said Muldoon. Ross saluted a few third ranks in the connecting corridor. The massive starboard Sky Pilot hangar, sectioned with Sky Pilot ships and weapons consoles, opened up before him. An identical section was located under the ship's other wing, beyond Fyther's Metafac. Center in the hangar was a light beige, bulky SAV, also designated ESS 14 004. The large frame Lindy stood with the young Jim Morris next to the vessel. Again, Ross was tempted to get an update from Morris on all the Sky Pilot repairs after the Marsavik encounter, but he remembered what Pfeiffer had said about dropping command responsibilities. I've been uh, ordered to relax. Lindy raised his dark brows and looked at Morris. Yeah, right. Then you better cut out all normal communications and keep everything on AZ channels, Jim. You telling me I can't relinquish my command duties? Who, me? asked Lindy. John, I hope you get hijacked and stranded in a fight with subterranean Columbus dike dwellers. Thanks for the send-off, but I'm not going to Bellatrex 7. Morris put his hand on Ross's shoulder. I told this to Lindy and I'll reiterate it to you. John, you've just been through a war with the Antarians and the parceling of command by the Marsavik people. You need a diversion and not just one of your pit bar expeditions with Lindy. You don't like pit bars, Mr. Morris? John, don't come back until you've completely forgotten you're even a part of Galactic Command. Enjoy your family, get closer to your father. 
Ross cringed at that suggestion and, and perfunctorily smiled. He compressed his forehead and glanced at Morris and then stepped onto the SAV ramp. As he plodded down the ramp, Ross heard Morris from behind. What did I say? You hit his hot button, said Lindy. Ross entered the vessel near the forward pilot controls but looked back to Morris. I'll see you when we get back, Jim. Thanks for your concern. Lindy rumbled up the ramp as Ross moved into the aisle. In his mind, Ross had a fixed image of his father, transmitted on an AZ channel just before the command ceremonies. His cold-faced, gray-haired father spoke as if he were reading a written statement under orders, and although only a day's journey from the ceremonies, he still claimed he was unable to attend. He hated his father for all the time the old man was away from the family, for his icy disposition when he was home. His father was a self-contained, unemotional puppet of the intelligence community. Ross knew Lindy was behind him. He also knew Lindy, even though he had never met the old man, sensed the extent of the strained relationship. Well, I uh, guess we've been ordered to have a good time, Lindy. Somehow I think you'd rather spend downtime with the Columbus Dyke Dwellers than your father. The outside ramp was positioned and locked in place. Lindy, you'll love him. He's engaging. He's charming. But he's incapable of intimacy to those close to him. And he is brilliant. And he hasn't shown respect for his son, an explorer spaceship commander who was instrumental in preventing the Antarians from overrunning command defenses. Ross sat next to the portal window. I didn't think he would be on the Earth Star when I requested leave. Something else is up. Something very odd. Chapter 3 The Earth Star ship was as prodigious as a mothership, but unlike the mothership's gray hull, its spreading blue dome glowed within the darkness of space with a curved aqua edge like a planet against the stars. The SAV dipped and slowed between Earth Star's underbelly as a tug drag locked around the vessel. They were pulled toward a rounded gray disk hued in magenta luminescence. A deep vibration rattled the SAV and the portals glowed red within a long corrugated tunnel. The Concourse Hotel was directly above them according to the flight plan. Ross studied the viewing screen. The concourse has 3,000 cabins, Lindy, and each cabin contains a cambium chamber. Well, who the hell would want to use a cambium chamber if you have an open area up top? Asked Lindy, looking up from his reader screen. Yeah, I guess you're right. Ross looked up the wide shaft toward the hotel. He tapped his fingers on the chair arm. Well, maybe sometimes reality isn't enough. Ross looked at Lindy reading and he smiled. He could only have made the four-day journey confined in this can of a ship with Lindy. This is a good book. Which disc are you reading? Ross asked as the ship rose upward. The Corbian March, Eric Samuels, 2036 Galactic Time. Oh, God, reading the classics, my boy. Samuels wrote about the Antarians marching the marooned expedition into their collective deaths. The manuscript was downloaded into a guard transmitter and ended up being picked up by a settlement party, Polonus. Samuels was executed within minutes after he transmitted. The manuscript was inside the Polonus for close to a year. Then it was copied and transmitted throughout command. I've never read it. That expedition, if I'm not mistaken, went to Antares with the intention of establishing a joint settlement. Ross closed his eyes because he knew now he was in proximity to his father. Correct. They were invited by the Antarians for that very purpose. If you look at the events that led up to the Antarian War, this has to be the opening shot, John, even though it was years before the battles began. John, are you there? Ross ran his fingers over his forehead and opened his eyes. Yeah, I'm here. You all right? Lindy's eyes were like dark moons hovering over his disc reader. He pushed the button, clearing the page screens. Your family okay? Yeah, how is your family, John? Well, Mom is aging well. Martha. Yeah, Martha was a Vega instructor. It's your father. He's at the root of this whole thing. Ross balanced his knuckles on his chin. He always had a cover. I didn't know he was in command intelligence until I was in my fourth year at the Institute. He flew in and just told me. I was stunned. Then everything started to make sense. The long absences, the changing of jobs, and the wall he built with us. Everyone except Deborah. 
Deborah Ross Gagnon. DR, it's always this little girl. My brother Cappy used to have it out with the old man. Cappy was a strappy little guy and he still is. He works outside the waste sector. Anyone near the Andromedan waste sector has to be made of a reinforced structure field. That area is where the Rax cartel sends its enemies. Cappy, smiled Ross, is one of the few scraper owners who refused to cut a deal with the Rax cartel. I don't know anyone who openly defies the cartel, at least anyone who's alive. Cappy owns his own company and has 40 scrapers. You have another brother, said Lindy. Wayne, professor at the Calgian University on Regular 7. Now, Wayne is just the opposite of Cappy, very quiet, very intelligent. He's been a tenured professor of literature for 16 years. Wayne sent the Samuel's disc. Yeah, well, what about the old man? Yeah, maybe he's mellowing, getting older. But still in command intelligence. Ross shook his head. I saw him once during the war. You remember that, he said, and Lindy nodded. He just came in to give me intelligence data. Not, how are you doing, or anything like that. That emotional barrier just stayed up. Then he was gone. Oh, I've gotten the usual transmitted data. Birthday greetings last April. God can't drop his guard, can he? Just trying to get him to agree to Erstow was a major battleground. My mother did it. I give the old man six hours. A full day at the outside. He'll split. I can feel it. Unless there's more to us being here. Chapter 4 Rumors exploded about Earthstar's tie to the Rax cartel, but Ross couldn't confirm the chatter. Earthstar sailed continuously through deep space and crossed the shipping lanes between the star colonies. Every week, 3,000 tourists arrived and departed at the various spaceports located in the vessel's underbelly. Ross studied the tourists inside the ships, waiting in formation at the port below the Concourse Hotel. Lindy piloted the little ship inside the huge docking bay atop the docking shaft. The outside monitors revealed an equalized air pressure, allowing a few people to navigate freely in the weightless steely haze hanging over the docking enclosure's white tube lights. Numerous vessels of various sizes and shapes maneuvered in and out of the busy port. Ross activated his ankle waders. The meter indicated the Perifield's duplicated ESS-14's gravity simulating densities. Lindy popped the outside hatch and the ramp settled down on the dock port. I sent a message to the hotel to send Hollis down for our gear, he said as he strolled onto the dock. The air was dank but had a sweet smell. I think they put that flowery stuff in the air. Oh, just lovely, said Lindy moving his nose around. Ross gazed down the slotted dock at port vessels docking in the fog several kilometers distance. He and Lindy marched toward a perpendicular dock in a central conveyor tube about 50 meters away. Some tourists carried weighted bags and suitcases, but most were aided by an army of red and gold uniformed haulers pushing long strap carts. Central Station, said Ross as they stepped with the crowd into the tube. The Polonis quickly scanned them both with a gyrating blue beam. With a wide grin, Lindy pretended to shiver in the beam, but Ross compressed his lips. He wondered what he would say to his father in such an unrestricted setting. Would he ever face an intimacy he never knew? The spacious car locked into position and rose to the concourse. The tube opened in the concourse's linear transparency merged into a bright azure sky dotted with flapping palm trees and a curved white bench outlined a wide blue bay. He turned to Lindy. Paradise lost. A tall woman in a green, luminescent, two-piece, simmering water suit slowly meandered toward the arch dome opening. What was that? asked Lindy, gazing toward the arch. Ross grinned and stepped onto the aqua, criss-cross pattern lobby rug. He trailed Lindy to the long granite counter set within wood panel walls. The gray-haired desk clerk in the deep purple day suit smiled as they approached. His identification screen on his shoulder identified him as Mr. Antone. Antone studied the scanning results from the elevator and the SAV approach readouts on the side screen. Commander Ross and Commander Lindsay, he said in a congenial tone. Your suites are ready, gentlemen. However, your family ship, Commander Ross, has yet to arrive. 
Well, I figured we'd be here first, said Ross. His brow tightened. Your suite is adjacent to your family's four suites on level 195, section 315. Your father's craft should be here in another six hours, according to my estimate. So my father hasn't joined them, I see. Let us know if there's anything we can do for you gentlemen during the wait. Ross positioned his elbow on the counter. Please notify my compact when my family's ship arrives. Do you have a reason for the delay? No, sir, but we'll look into it right away. Thank you, Mr. Antone, said Ross. What about your father? Ross's face tensed. He'll find me. Yes, sir, said Antone. I have sent Hollis to your SAV as per your instructions. He removed a bronze compact from his polonis. This compact will direct you verbally to your suites if you choose to walk, or it will link to a transport cart should you wish transportation. Frankly, I'd just as soon relax, said Ross, looking at Lindy. Then he raised his brows. Well, Pfeiffer did order me to relax. We'll take the cart, said Lindy. Antone pushed a button and beige, two-seated carts pushed through the sliding doors beyond the counter. The Polona spoke as the cart stopped beside them on the counter. Are you ready, gentlemen? Absolutely, said Lindy, depositing his large frame in the forward seat, and he propped up his legs. Ross climbed in back. Why don't you just make yourself comfortable, Lindy? Lindy stretched out his arms. Now, this is the life. Enjoy yourselves, said Antone, smiling at the desk as the cart rolled away. The cart looped onto a wide sloping ramp and rolled behind several other carts along an open wall overlooking palm trees, white sands, and deep-hued water. Salty, moist air currents hit Ross's face, and hints of tropical flowers convinced him that he just might relax on this downtime. The ramp leveled to a straight, megacrete runway with a wider view of the bay ringed within purple mountains farther down the shore. The car continued for a few minutes before veering into a lush courtyard. Hummingbirds darted between the transport feeders and bees propped up around the bright flower petals and an abundance of green leaves. Ah, like home on Alpha 7, said Ross. Yeah, well, I was born on O-Post 29, John. The only birds we had were in the Cambian chambers, but they never made any messes on the walkways, either. Ross grinned and gazed up through the simulated warming sunshine, blanketing rows of white brick suites with black shutters. Classic colonial. That goes back to ancient Earth. Yeah, another galaxy, another time. I keep forgetting what the Marsavik people did to our sector. The cart slowed through an archway, outlining a crisp view of a brilliant blue bay. Both men stepped onto the brick walkway and the Polonis wished them well. Ross put his hands on his hips and surveyed the bay as he took in the humid air. The cart turned in a circle, waited for them to step aside, then started back to the lobby as he exhaled. At least his family, although delayed, would arrive before the old man. Chapter 5 Relax, Antone said about three hours and they'll be here, John, said Lindy, holding a carved-out coconut containing a crimson foam tropical drink. They call this thing Poing Elixir, but it sure as hell tastes like rum to me. Hey, John, we've got time. Let's go below and unwind. Do some swimming, maybe rent a boat. Rent a boat? Yeah. How about a dark pit bar, said Ross. You need fresh air, said Lindy. You go, Lindy. John, we're off ship now, and I keep telling you to stop worrying about your father. Get your ass out of this room and outside. Is that an order, Commander? You bet you're pulling elixir it is, replied Lindy, motioning him forward. Okay, okay, said Ross. Antone buzzed the room viewer. Now, now what? Commander Ross, may I have a word with you? Do we run out of marquees already? Antone's countenance and bald head resembled a stone-faced statue. Commander, there's been a complication with your family's arrival. Complication? What do you mean? The ship has gone off our screens. We've alerted... What do you mean it's gone off your screens? Asked Ross, leaping to his feet. Destroyed? No, it has accelerated into deep space. It was locked into Earth Star's tug drag. The spaceport people don't understand it. Well, they damn well better understand it. The craft is heading directly away from Earth Star's charted course, outside present command M81 sectors. Lindy tilted his head. Well, that makes no damn sense. 
No, it doesn't. Not unless you're dealing with a command intelligence officer, said Ross, shaking his head. Oh, come on, John. You can't blame your father for this one. Mr. Antone, link me to the spaceport. Yes, sir. A frequency image formed in a communication station window span jutted into the blackness of space. Anton spent a few minutes explaining the predicament to a frequency officer. Because he was an ESS commander, Ross was connected directly to a controller with a wide-boned, bearded face. I'm Ronald Corson. We've made repeated attempts to contact your brother's personal vessel. Cappy? Correct. Final approach was confirmed by your brother himself, and then suddenly the vessel veered away. Is it being dragged? asked Ross. Do not detect a tug drag. Mr. Corson, can my second-in-command have access to your instruments? Blinking. Go ahead, Commander Lindsay. Lindy turned the chair around and sat. The viewer screen split into a half a dozen smaller monitors, but the tracking equations confirmed Ross's worst fears. Cappy's ship appeared as an orange dot on the upper screen, and a green broken line illustrated the diverted course. Ross ordered Lindy to reset the Polonis, but his second-in-command's brown eyes were pensive. John, if they were closer, I might be able to figure this out. Again, they're moving away at a speed inconsistent with that craft. That was our thought, said Corson. We need to notify command the nearest outpost, said Lindy, bringing the blue and red schematics of command outposts and ships on the screen. And ESS-14 is headed to Capella, and we're out here in deep space. The closest command outpost is Sigma Antares, the large base at Conchu. Booted Cigna would still take two days out, two days back. And then time to command would be a few weeks. Send it, send it, said Ross. What's causing this? Lindy pushed his lips. Both he and Ross knew of his father's intelligence connections. Alliances and old relationships, both friendly and unfriendly, were ever present with the old man. Ross now thought his father had deliberately involved the family. He could only imagine the panic inside Cappy's ship. Conchu Base! Conchu Base! This is Commander Hugh Lindsay, ESS-14, on downtime Earthstar Vessel. I am speaking to you from Earthstar Vessel 2312 Recreational Registry. This is a Priority 1 distress signal. We require your assistance on a craft in danger. Craft PR-17, he said, reading Ross's handwritten note. PR-17 is on a divergent course from the Earth Star vessel, traveling at speeds beyond its capacity. We require immediate rescue assistance from your outpost, ESS-14, or any galactic command vessel in the area. He looked up at Ross. John, this message will take time, and you're not going to send a vessel out here for one tiny ship said Ross, shaking his head as he turned. I wish ESS-14 wasn't on this Capellan thing. Maybe they knew that your father... Where the hell is he? ESS-14 is the answer, said Lindy. But we're talking five days out on a booted signal, John. Then we'll have to go there ourselves. John, our leave orders specify Earthstar. He pushed his teeth together as he spoke. Lindy, my entire family is on that ship. I don't give a damn about command leave orders. Tag on an addendum. Inform command I'm breaking orders and I'm following my brother's ship. Well, that ship is traveling past emergency speed, faster than it's capable of traveling. Antone, shouted Ross. The older man popped up on the screen. Yes, commander. I need a ship capable of emergency speed, said Ross, as if he were barking out orders on the ship. This is just a cruise ship, Commander. We only have SAVs and a few light transport freighters. Ross threw up his hands and spun from the screen. Lindy, get my father's vessel on the viewer. Yes, sir. And then find me a ship, said Ross, crossing to the balcony overlooking the bay. Lindy spoke with Corson and a few other people in the spaceport as Ross stared at the palm leaves, tickled by the passing breeze. People piloted huge blue-wheeled crafts around the bay amidst white sails and brightly colored paragliding chutes dotted the blue skies. John, we have a problem. What now? Your father's flight plan was bogus. He was never on his way to Earthstar. Ross's body tensed as he fixated on the waves breaking offshore. That bastard. That bastard. Nothing would shake the helplessness as he imagined Cappy's tiny ship moving into deep space, nor could he forgive his father. 
he paced in Anton's upper office bin. Anton was a company man requesting a private ship that required weeding through the local hotel bureaucracy. The company personnel on Earthstar and the spaceport were reluctant to involve any passengers or Earthstar's private ships due to liability. Ross spoke with the upper-level managers well into the evening, referring to his position with command, but they wouldn't budge. He would have to place messages to the owners of Earthstar. Even though you're an ESS commander, getting through to the proper channels could take days. I don't have days. I need a vessel now, Mr. Anton. Anton's face tightened as if the temperature had just dropped 50 degrees. Well, I understand what you're saying, but... He sat behind his desk and faced the monitor. Dunstable! Yes, Mr. Anton? Prepare my ship for immediate departure. Destination? Anton closed his eyes briefly and exhaled. Commander Ross and his second-in-command from ESS-14 will give you that information. Ross raised his clenched fist in the air and then patted Lindy on the shoulder. They will be piloting the ship. Dunstable's voice shot out from the perforated brown speaker. Sir, I, I don't have official notification. Then I'm giving it to you now. But I need instructions. Anton stood and grit his teeth. You will prepare my ship or you'll find yourself working somewhere else. After a brief silence, Dunstable agreed and Ross shook Anton's hand. Be assured this will get back to command. No, Commander. Consider this a private favor. I'm not one to live by regulations when lives hang in jeopardy. Chapter 6 The long craft's scallop wings mesmerized Ross. He stared at the dark, undecided, perforated coil vents. Can this ship reach emergency speed? Dunstable was a little man with pinpoint black eyes. Anton's ship is a Class 15 with an arc-driven coil system. Power is 32 times faster than a flight vessel. Well, that's excellent, said Ross as Dunstable shook his head. You have a problem with that, Dunstable? You're violating numerous regulations without an official flight plan. I should file a security brief before this gets out of hand. He removed a small silver drac from his pocket. Ross looked at Lindy with a slight grin and executed a quick leg thrust, knocking the drac onto the floor. His second-in-command quickly scooped it up. Dunstable's astonished look was stuck on his face. Sit down, Dunstable. What do you mean? You're going for a little ride. Why, why, you, you can't do this. Watch me. Lindy pushed Dunstable through the hatch opening and ordered the Polonis to retract the hatch as Ross sat in the pilot seat. Come on, Dunstable, sit down. Well, this is highly irregular. Ross looked over his shoulder as he powered up the vessel. Hey, Dunstable, shut up. Eight hours away from Earthstar, Ross had locked onto Cappy's Caleb Trail, but Dunstable's gibberish grated on his patience. He precariously brought the hotel ship toward a singular, luminous red hourglass buoy in deep space. Do you know what the penalty is for not filing a vessel flight plan? asked Dunstable from a side seat in the cabin. Ross glanced at Lindy as he docked the hotel vessel with the buoy. Prepare buoy disembarkation. You wouldn't dare, said Dunstable. Lindy ran his finger slowly along his neck. There's only a few limited air canisters out here. You men are consummate space rogues. You have 11 days of air, Constable. Dunstable, and how am I supposed to connect to Earthstar? I have a little glass bottle, said Lindy. Ross studied the screen's projections for Cappy's ship. You rogues will pay dearly for this. Lindy slid open the docking doors. Have a nice time, Bumstable. His little brown eyes spread open. You can't make me do anything. You have no controlling legal authority. Ross clamped one hand on Dunstable's pants and grasped the fabric at the scruff of his neck. As the little man squirmed and complained about his treatment, Ross swung him back and hurled him into the docking airlocks. Lindy immediately closed the hatch doors. Ross returned to the pilot's chair and dislodged the buoy docking. Dunstable pounded on the bright docking portal transparency. Ross checked Cappy's course again and raised his brows. Interesting. John, how long are you going to wait before calling Earthstar? How much air does he have? Eleven days. Ah, a week, maybe ten days. Give the little bastard a scare. He changed the mag as he powered up the ship again. Polonis, vessel trail on the screen, lock in position. 
lock into signal trajectory unclear why does that signal dissipate the hotel ship shot forward at breakaway speed and the stars momentarily blurred well your brother's vessel was commandeered for some reason replied lindy they didn't cross the shipping lanes maybe a rogue ship there's nothing of value out here ross activated a screen with a detailed map of charted and uncharted space we have a number of planets here he said looking at the list below 352 said the polonis great he said banging the console with his fist i know this is my father's doing that bogus flight plan of his why would your father put his family in jeopardy asked lindy <laughs> not by design his intelligence operations have put them in harm's way i bet my life on it regardless we have to find the caleb trail again Ross looked up slowly and clenched his fists. I won't take it. If that old man risked everybody, I just won't stand for it. He'll pay dearly. Chapter 7 Three days out in the Caleb Trail was traceable to the Scavia Tangle system. Ross questioned the compact's map's accuracy after the Marsavrix people's transposition of this sector. The Scavia Tangle system, according to the Polonis, had no affiliation with Galactic Command. The planets had once housed mining colonies and were abandoned during the last century, but resettled by a religious group called the Elias Sect. Culture and population details were unavailable. The system was named after the outer planet. That planet was settled in the central latitudes with the arrival of an expedition party 2043 Galactic Time but the mining proved impractical at such a distance and the settlement was disbanded in 2161 galactic time. Use geared toward tapping planetary resources, a small company, records incomplete, said Ross. The Winged Venture Company. <laughs> Winged in a prayer, said Lindy. The trail of your brother's vessel is definitely going through the Scavia Tangle system, but that binary system is beyond that. They still have a couple of days on us, John. Why are they being brought out here? Ross asked the viewer and he stood. Polonis, second planet on the viewer. Polonis, 44.666 supplementary archive record. Scavia Tangle Colony. Input 21 Biogress, 2150 Galactic Time. Scavia Tangle Colony arrived on planet surface 16th March 2079 Galactic Time. Settlement was established in the Alton Accords, so named after the first elected planetary governor. The Alton Accords forbade any religion except the Elias sect belief system, begun in 2020's galactic time on the Procyon colony ships. Colony originally accepted trade and added colonists. Cities were established on the southern coast of the continent called the mainland collateral settlements across the channel on the Necros Island, but early progress soon began to stagnate. Adherence to religious beliefs were paramount and further settlements ceased. Everything was geared toward the individual Elias sect fulfillment. Scavia Tangle has no exports, no planetary defenses, nor are there any regular ships to the more settled planets. System is totally isolated. Married in the Elias sect belief system, it shows no signs of progress. Taken from the freighter Industrious, Vessels Captain, Communique, 2nd February 2149 Galactic Time, Polonis 44.666. That ship, Industrious, said Lindy, was out here during the Antarian War. Sounds like a closed religious system, said Ross, tightening his brow which makes this all the more confusing. Why bring anyone in from the outside? Opinion, Lindy. Opinion, that's a good one, replied Lindy, looking at the viewer's colorful graphics. Why would somebody bring my family out here? With the exception of the man who would be at the most risk, of course. If this were a hostage situation, we would have heard something. Uh, my father's an experienced officer. Public knowledge of his intelligence activities is restricted. Cappy's ship came from Alpha 7, your home planet. Originally, yes, my brother and sister met him along the way. Wait, didn't we receive general orders from command about freighter attacks along the shipping lanes? 
Yeah, during the past few months we keep getting updates about the attacks, nothing about commandeering vessels. Freighters have been boarded for supplies and there have been deaths, rogue bands of small ships, the private companies are handling enforcement. Command hasn't had any requests for help. You think this is related, John? I don't know. I only know they cross the shipping lanes. But Scabia Tangle is an Elias sex society. Not the type of people who would be attacking the shipping lanes and commandeering vessels. What do they believe? asked Lindy. I don't know, and I don't know if it's relevant. Polonis, what exactly is the Elias set? Information unavailable. Now that figures. Lindy turned in the chair. In any event, it makes no sense to what's happened with your father's ship. As he prepared for sleep in one of the beds midway down the hotel vessel, Ross realized Cappy's ship would arrive on Scavia Tangle at least a day ahead of him. He worried about his family's safety and didn't fall asleep for close to an hour. When the ship's alarm sounded, Ross rolled out of bed, his eyes still half shut as he staggered forward. Lindy rushed by him to the pilot's alcove. It's a hell of a wake-up call, said Lindy as he yawned. Frequency attempt? asked Ross. Polonis, are we getting a message from my brother's ship? The message is coming in from Scabia Tangle, said Polonis. Tangle? asked Ross, positioning himself in the forward chair. Play message, ordered Lindy. At first, static mixed with fluctuating signals and a background hiss split the speaker within what sounded like a room crowded with people. A louder voice, electronically altered, addressed their vessel. Attention. Ross turned to Lindy in front of the instrument's glow. Enemy vessel. Who the hell is Saul? asked Lindy. Lindy, bring this vessel on a course outer and navigation. Navigation is jammed, John. Lindy physically pulled on the manual control, but the stick was frozen. Ross leaped up and grabbed the control stick while he peered into space. Trying to dislodge that stick might break it. Polonis, what the hell is going on here? Ship is caught with an eight tug drag beam. Source of the beam. Source of the beam is planet Scavia Tangle, said the Polonis. Transmission from the main industrial area, south southern coast of the largest continent, the mainland. Signal emanates from transmitter on mountains surrounding Barlow's Cove and the ocean. Tug drag beams of this intensity are unusual. But the Sol Domain controls the tug drags, said Lindy. I never heard of the Sol Domain, said Ross, still trying to dislodge the stick. Polonis, shut down navigation system and commence flow of peri fields. That's a good idea, John. You, you could shake them, said Lindy. Put on this vessel's distress beacon, said Ross. Maximum radius. Beacon is on. The ship lurched left as the peri fields reversed within the hull. A glow of red particles swarmed around the ship's exterior. Gravity zoomed down to zero for a few seconds, yet the controls would still not respond. Scavia Tangle and the Sol Domain dragged the vessel forward. Damn this! cried Ross, clenching his fist. Polonis, get me a frequency to that planet. Message will be delayed. I don't care if it goes in by carrier pigeon shouted Ross. My family is on that ship and being brought into all this. Is this my father's doing? Frequency is on, said the Polonis. Ross inhaled and took several seconds to compose himself. He spoke slowly and deliberately. To tug drag activators on planet Scavia Tangle. Release beam at once. You've said that we are trespassing, yet you have sent no warning buoys, no frequency alerts. You are in direct defiance of Galactic Command. Release this beam now or face retaliatory action from Galactic Command. We have no power to back up that threat, John, said Lindy, grinning. The nearest vessel is probably ESS-14. You're talking eight or nine days getting that ship out here. Well, they don't know that, said Ross. What I don't understand is how they'd get this technology. This is a religious colony. Unknown, said Lindy, and they waited a reply. Ten minutes later, on a booted signal, the frequency channel beeped. Ross pushed the button and the same electronically garbled voice within a group of people came on the speaker. 
strong vessel. Identify and pause enemy target. You will be considered an enemy target. He does wonders to the English language and he's elevated our status to an enemy target. Ross turned toward him. We're obviously not dealing with the Elias sect. Yet there are no records of any other settlement. I'm telling you the intelligence service has something to do with this, said Ross. Polonis, check the other archives and locate the Sol domain. Retrieving, said the Polonis, but nothing came up on the screen. What is this Sol domain? Nothing across the historical archives, said the Polonis. Could it be possible that this planet is relatively isolated? He said as another frequency came in. Ross, disgusted, pushed the button. You have vessel, a star cruiser, pleasure craft. It is. You have business, state with the Sol domain. Send this reply. What is this Sol domain? Our records show that Scavia Tangle is an Elias Sec colony. Who are you? Response will take six minutes. John, we have the beginnings of a visual, said Lindy, and a blurred image of a blue-green planet with wispy cloud patterns above huge oceans came into view. Nothing on your brother's ship yet. They're on a similar beam. Can you confirm that? Confirmed. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lindy, but Command doesn't even have technology to bring in a ship at the distance Cappy's ship was locked into in that tug drag. Bingo, John. Tug drag beams do have a limited range. Ross swiveled in the chair and tapped his fingers on the jam control stick. He was unsure at this juncture whether his family was even on that ship or whether they were dead or alive. He spoke into the compact's recorder. Commanded John B. Ross, Concord Vessel AC-79673, Polonis 44.666, 3.55pm, 12 Humana, 2154 Galactic Time, Personal Recording. Three days ago, Commander Lindsay and I appropriated the concourse vessel AC-79673, owned by hotel manager Antone. We've been chasing the Caleb Trail, left from my brother Cappy's ship. My mother, my brother Wayne, and sister Deborah are also thought to be on that vessel. All signs point toward a tug-drag beam greater than anything I've encountered, emanating from the planet Scavia Tangle. Tangle seems to have been conquered by an individual named Saul and aptly named the Saul Domain. My father's role in this is uncertain, but I have no doubt this unfortunate incident has something related to his classified intelligence work. Commander Lindsay is awaiting a return signal to my request for Saul to identify himself and the nature of his domain. Ross, aboard hotel vessel. Ross instructed the Polonis to send the message to command. He slowly looked up from the compact. At this distance, even with the lower output of the hotel craft, he was not sure how long the frequency would take to get back to command. On the long-range mags, he stared at Scavia Tango's aqua oceans and brown shaded continents, and he wondered what his family was going through down there. It was the incoming signal from Scavia Tango that broke his concentration. Chapter 8 Ross leaned near the forward span. The emerging, convoluted, snow-sprinkled mountain ranges bordered the inlets of the ocean's squiggly shoreline. The schematic showed a tapering isthmus congruent with the signal transmission. A shimmering channel was cupped within the rounded mountains, and a city settlement formed where the cove curved at the inner isthmus. The rolling interior was also caked in snow. Additional intimidating messages bombarded the frequency channel as the ship was dragged through space, but no one answered Ross's responses. He identified himself as the commander of ESS-14 and told him directly that command would not take the provocation lightly. Again, Saul's belligerent tone directly threatened them both. Ross flipped to the tracking screen. The green-dotted trail descended through the atmosphere and looped above the isthmus into the city. Here's your brother's ship, John. The crisp docking port's megacrete strip was swept with snow and boarded by a high chain-link fence. A closer picture showed a bulky white ship with side fins and a long blue stripe. There's no communications from his ship. Why haven't they just destroyed it? asked Ross. Or us, for that matter, added Lindy. Good point. Ross stared at Cappy's name in bold blue letters near the red registry numbers. 
This city isn't constructed of proper material. Either the Elias movement evolved into something radically different from its founders' intentions, or the construction of the concrete and brick city building are relics. The Saul Domain. Lindy hit his arm and pointed toward the readout. Speed slowed and the craft altitude indicated a course into the main city. So, we go right into the thick of it, said Ross. Activate this ship's baby drack beams. John, I might as well have a squirt gun. We aren't going to have a chance against this domain. Even though this doesn't make sense, they have great technology here. Even an ESS ship doesn't have tug drags like this. Ross knew Lindy was right. Indicators revealed a slower speed down into the atmosphere. I just wish we had ESS instruments. I wish we had ESS weapons, replied Lindy, bringing a smile to Ross's face. At the lower levels, the sky was tinted aqua with some puffy cloud formations over the deeper green sea. Planet's gravity took over, and along the coastline, smokestacks spouted billowing gray smoke trails skyward. A fiery trail arched upward and impacted near the road formations across the snowy hills. I think something exploded out there. Ah, the Sol Domain isn't at peace. A high, cracked gray wall separated the blue-green sea and the city. Across the urban hills, building shells and debris mounds revealed the extent of the hostilities. Outside, temperature is 4 degrees centigrade at midday. Ross again followed one of the smoke trails back over the rolling land. Where are those rockets being launched from, Lindy? Sporadic locations. Not much punch to the explosive. Probably a sodium nitrate-based compound. No advanced weapons? And why is this place at war? Another rocket traced the sky and impacted on the road closer to the city itself. I would place the actual advancement of the civilization close to the midpoint. Maybe less of middle industrialized earth. Beginnings of petroleum-based transport systems, automobiles, and trains. Some sub-atmospheric vessels are powered by the same, and chemically-based rocket devices. Yeah, well, the tug drags are an enigma. I can understand they're developing space flight, but not those beams that bring in distant ships. This makes no sense. Ross wondered as he fixated on the outside landscape how and why they had brought this vessel and his brother's vessel to Scabia Tangle. As the ship descended vertically, Ross marveled at the collection of propeller-driven atmospheric vehicles along a crater-popped asphalt airport runway. A large corrugated metal hangar entrance was blocked by several dozen helmeted troops in stark green uniforms standing rigid with rifles balanced. Ross reached for his drack and looked at Lindy. He kept his fingers on a scalloped weapon as the hotel ship descended to a point less than 150 meters from the hangar. A huge number of uniformed troops now pointed rifles at the hotel ship as they rumbled forward and the ship was quickly encircled. They have lead projectile rifles. Just as deadly as a drack, said Lindy. When he heard banging at the portal, Ross, his stomach fluttering, raised his brows. Suggestions, Mr. Lindsay. Open the portal, he said with a series of faces Ross had ever seen. Portal, open, ordered Ross, and he stood. The outside bolt locks clicked and the portal ramped hummed downward. Five soldiers, small yellow and orange sun insignias on the front of their green metal helmets, rushed inside. Ross noticed more bright sun insignia sewn into their dark, uniform fabric. Prisoners of the Saul Domain you are, said a younger soldier in a dull and lifeless tone. I'm Commander John Ross, said Ross, still clutching the drack. Even if he successfully fired the drack, a plethora of lead pellets would instantly pierce his body. We have come here against our will. We need to speak with someone in authority. The soldier nodded and three others with weapons drawn stomped inside the ship. One of the rifle butts stung Ross's hand and his drack spun across the floor. Then he was hit in the ribs. He was about to assume a defensive position when they hit his head. The soldiers pounced on him and he fought as they held him down. Blood flowed from his nostrils and above his right eye. They lifted him from under the armpits and dragged him down the hatch ramp. The cold air stung his cuts. His boots scraped against the gritty asphalt. More soldiers awaited him at a loud, idling truck. Somebody smacked him near the truck's weathered wood sideboard. The aqua sky faded and his body numbed as he went out. And yes, for all you doubters out there, I do know the name of Frankenstein's author. 
I dropped her maiden name in the intro as to not give away the name of the project. So many movies have been done with cyborgs and androids and robots. I wanted this book to have a family struggle element, especially with Ross's father, as well as the burden of creating Saul being on galactic command itself. I think it's always important, especially in things scientific, to think about the implications, which we really do until something happens. Something will happen next episode as Ross and Lindy arrive on Scabia Tangle. I'm Robert P. Fitton, looking for monsters on the early show. Good day. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.